Finance Insider, a premium edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. Today's host is Senior Editor Chris Sheridan. For the last several decades or more, there's been a major shift in how the global economy and markets function. Many people feel and know this to be true, as if we've entered a whole brave new world, but aren't quite sure what to call it. Some have said that we no longer operate under capitalism, and that instead we should call it creditism, or the strict control of credit flowing through the financial system drives the global economy. There are many other isms as well that may operate more or less in a given region, socialism or totalitarianism, for example. But there is one above all others, especially in light of what we see today, that has come to be the reigning paradigm across all facets of the global economy, markets, and society. That is technocratism. Patrick Wood is the world's foremost leading expert and author on this subject, who has detailed the history, evolution, and ongoing implementation of technocratism or technocracy. His most popular book is titled Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. I'm really glad to be here again. And a lot of stuff has happened since we last talked. And boy, it's exciting times. Well, it certainly is. And technocracy has moved into overdrive since we last spoke. Just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with the term, would you mind providing a description or definition of technocracy and where or when it first arose? Absolutely. We go back to Columbia University, 1932, when a group of scientists and engineers got together, mostly from Columbia, to create a new economic system. They believed that capitalism was dead because of the Great Depression. And so they said, well, we should be able to do this. Let's get together and do something new. And that's what they did. They ended up with an economic system called technocracy, not democracy, and not communism or socialism either, I might add. They were actually very much opposed to communism and socialism and Marxism in that day. But here's what they wrote about themselves in 1938 in the Technocrat magazine that was published in North America. They said uh, in this direct quote, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. For the first time in human history, it will be done as a scientific technical engineering problem. It went on to say after that, and that just establishes the economic system flavor of things. The entire social mechanism is in view here, produce and distribute goods and services. There's lots of stuff attached to that, but that was the basic thing. But then it goes on to say, there will be no place for politics, politicians, finance or financiers, rackets or racketeers. Technocracy will distribute by means of a certificate of distribution available to every citizen from birth to death. And this points out the antipathy that technocracy has for politicians and political systems. They absolutely eschew those things. They believe their egos are pretty inflated, you might say, but they believed that they were so right and so good, I guess, that there would be no need for a political system because the people were basically ignorant anyway, and they were scientists with PhDs after all, and that they could just make the system that would be flawless uh, for running the world. 
And so that's why there's been this antagonism between technocracy and politicians ever since. And we see it today as being as really pronounced now today, I, I believe. But that's it in a nutshell, what technocracy is and what, kind of how it started. It came back to life uh, after kind of dying out before World War II. It kind of came back to life in the early 70s with the um, elite organization known as the Trilateral Commission. They were the ones that said that they were going to create a new international economic order. That was their literature, their words, not mine. And uh, so as we look forward and fast forward to today, uh, I can see very clearly that what the Trilateral Commission meant back in 1973 is the new international economic order. We're here. (laughs) We have arrived at this point where the world is being flipped upside down. The Great Reset is in full view. And uh, all the major institutions of the world are just struggling right now as, as they transform into this new vision for the future. Essentially, it sounds like this is a scientific dictatorship, perhaps run by engineers, scientists, and uh, technologists. Is that a fair characterization? It would be. And that would be the end result in practical terms. Let's say in uh, what in... Uh, in citizen terms, right, that, that people might understand, yeah, scientific dictatorship, it means complete control over your life, everything you do, everything you consume, the jobs you work at, it's micromanagement to the nth degree. If there was a person that you could point to today that perhaps many of us know or have heard about in the news um, that symbolizes the technocratic ideal or aims, who would that be? Well, it would be the richest man in the world, Elon Musk. The reason I say that is that Elon Musk's grandfather, Dr. Joshua Haldeman, they were from Canada, by the way, uh, later migrated to um, South Africa where Elon was born. But uh, his grandfather was the head of the technocracy movement in Canada for several years during the 30s and early 40s. And Musk grew up in a technocrat home. Interesting. He is now, if you, and I've thought of, I've, I've analyzed a lot of the things he said over time. He thinks like a technocrat. He, he talks like a technocrat. And I dare say he walks like a technocrat. <laughs> you know, he's, he is steeped in this stuff and nobody can really, and this is, this has confused a lot of people. You cannot look at Elon Musk and say, there goes a communist. You can't say it. It just does not fit. Some people call him a libertarian. That probably is more accurate in a sense. I mean, there's a little bit more overlap, but sometimes he's anti-government. Well, actually, most of the time he got no use for it. But, you know, he he has worked his technocratic upbringing, if you will, to now become the richest man on the planet. I'd never heard that. So Elon Musk's grandfather, you said, is one of the architects or leaders of the technocratic movement from the 30s. Did I get that correct? North North America was the focus of technocracy in those days. And there was, of course, the U.S. and then there was Canada. Canada had a huge contingent of technocrats across all five provinces. And each province had their own leader. But then they had a grand leader over all of the five provinces, and that was uh, Musk's grandfather. Hmm. And from my understanding, a lot of your source material for your book, Technocracy Rising, came out of Canada. 
It did. And in fact, the original technocracy movement transferred a lot of its stuff up to, um, uh, well, for a while it was up in, in Washington state, just below the Canadian border. But the leaders of the technocrat movement in Canada in the early 1990s, they were all getting close to their 90s. <laughs> and, they, and they said, we need to have some university take on our, all of the material that we have because they saved everything. Engineers and scientists do that sort of thing. They save everything they ever did. And they had all these papers and journals and pictures and letters and magazines, you name it. That's just a ton of stuff. And they talked to the University of Alberta uh, up in Edmonton to accept the archive and put it, store it for posterity's sake. Uh, we found it. We discovered it. Myself and another Canadian friend discovered the archive up there. They finally put it online and it popped up and say, whoa. So I, I decided I can't resist. And I'm topped in my car with my wife. Up we drove to Canada. We went up to Edmonton, spent a, quite a few, uh, several days there um, going through box after box after box of this information, most of which had not seen the light of day. Uh, since those people, leaders put it into the university. And before that, hasn't probably seen the light of day since it was some of that stuff was actually written and penned back in the 30s and 40s. It was a goldmine. For me, it was an absolute goldmine. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, as you said, I mean, the definition you took right out of their materials technocracy yeah. is the science of social engineering the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like the technocratic movement was first birthed in America after the Great Depression. Sounds like it migrated largely up to Canada, and it's now evolved since. You spoke of the Trilateral Commission in 1973, as you've written about that is essentially adopted a modified version of the historic definition of technocracy to craft what it called the new international economic order. Where would you say technocracy is largely operating out of now? I mean, is there a place where you see uh, you know, a large gathering or group of people that are symbolizing this movement or pushing it forward as you see it today? Well, the biggest national purveyors of technocracy today start with China. Uh, India is right behind, and that accounts for almost half the population of the world. China has been actively exporting its technocratic principles to anybody who will take it. And they've had great inroads into Africa and South America, uh, Central America too, to some extent, but well, especially Panama. But they have, uh, they have morphed, they've matured as a technocracy, even though they still carry the trappings, the visible trappings of other systems, like, for instance, the, the, you know, the CCP in China uh, is still kind of the, the front display of whatever. But <clears throat> I have to point out, you know, I said, well, how did this happen? You need that kind of needs to be understood, I suppose. You have Zbigniew Brzezinski was the co-founder of the Trilateral Commission in 1973 with David Rockefeller. It was kind of the beauty and the beast the brains and the brawn, right? <laughs> so uh, the thing that caught Rockefeller's eye was Brzezinski's earlier book, or most recent book at the time, it was called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. The Technotronic Era was, the era, was foreseen by Brzezinski um, as being what we're in today. 
that's, I mean, this is a, he was a brilliant strategist, evil perhaps, but brilliant. And he foresaw a day when all these other systems are going to fall away. And this technotronic era would, would rise emergent, whatever as dominate. And we, that I believe we're at that stage right now. However, in 1976, when he was the uh, national security advisor for Jimmy Carter, uh, who is also a member of the trilateral commission, by the way, so was Walter Mondale, but it was Brzezinski who brought uh, chairman Deng Xiaoping to America from communist China to be welcomed back onto the world stage. And Brzezinski is widely credited as being single-handedly being the guy who, who wined and dined chairman Deng and normalized relations with China and China at that time looked like a lot like North Korea. It was a train wreck, economic train wreck. It was horrible. Um, they knew nothing. They couldn't run the country. They were always on the verge of collapse and some, some provinces did collapse. But the question rises in my mind, it did immediately when I discovered technocracy, what was it that Brzezinski taught China when China came back onto the world stage again as an economic nothing, but they grew into superpower? Did he teach them free market economics or did he teach them the technotronic era or the principles of technocracy? That question was answered definitively in 2000 by Time Magazine, which was one of the original uh, members of the Trilateral Commission, a media member. Time Magazine wrote in context with the 1930s that China had morphed from a communist dictatorship into a technocracy, which of course is still looks like a dictatorship because it is, but it's run as a technocratic model. Now, scientific engineering, the science of social engineering. And uh, so it is apparent that Brzezinski taught or brought people to the table that could teach communist China, these principles and how to apply them. And they went back and did, and it was wildly successful in one, on one hand. Uh, because they do have, you know, they grew like crazy for, and for a long, long time. But the downside of that whole thing is, of course, we look at them today, we see the social credit scoring system, we see the massive surveillance systems in place, uh, we see the autocratic dictatorship, you know, the scientific dictatorship, if you will, the rise of AI in China, all of these things, and mostly using technology stolen from the West, but that's immaterial. But China is, uh, is, is morphed as being a full-blown technocracy. And that's really important to see in the world stage from a political science point of view, um, because they don't march to the same drum that the communists did in 1970, for instance. It's totally different today. Uh, we see China producing billionaires in droves now. That never would have happened under communism, ever. So they're the biggest threat, the biggest national threat on a global stage. But, but India, I have to hasten, is right behind them. And India has done some incredible uh, things with, you know, to implement the policies that China has that clamps down on the system. And you mentioned scientific dictatorship early. That, that speaks China. That speaks India at this point. And unfortunately, well, it speaks Europe to a large degree, too, many places in Europe. And unfortunately, we're not far behind in America right now. It's coming, it's coming to our city now, you know. Well, it, it, when you say that, you know, when I asked you, what person do you think really symbolizes the technocratic ideal 
or movement today. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't expecting you to say Elon Musk. That was a surprise. I was actually thinking that you were going to say either Anthony Fauci or Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum. Well, they are leading the pack. There's no doubt they're leading the pack. And it, back in the 70s, when Anthony Sutton and I were writing about the Trilateral Commission, these people, after they figured out that we were against them and that we were a thorn in their side, they hid. They didn't want to come out and play anymore with it. They didn't want to debate us anymore. They just hid out and they would throw, uh, you know, conspiracy theory bombs at us and try and paint us as being left wingers or right wingers, but any, anywhere, but the center, they always fill the center, but they would hide out. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't acknowledge anything they were doing to anybody back in those days. Today, that's changed today. The same type of people are rep and many members of the trilateral commission that are part of the world economic forum, they are now crowing about their new international economic order. They call it the great reset. That's just a marketing term. It, you know, it's the same substance. They're transforming the world into a technocracy where you'll have dominant forces of the science of social engineering, which is not a science, by the way, it, they call it that. It's not science. It's pseudoscience. We'll talk about that. But when they talk about regulating the entire system to produce and distribute goods, this kind of brings a new focus on it. What, before we knew to, about technocracy in the, back in the 70s, Sutton and I both said that what Rockefeller was after was to grab all the resources of the world. That's, what we, that's how we read it at the time, that it was a resource grab. Uh, we, we thought that he foresaw the end of money one day, that the currencies of the world, fiat currencies, would be you know, relegated to the blast furnace. And that he'd have to do something different to keep, on, to keep a hold of his wealth. So he decided, I think, this is kind of my speculation, but I think the evidence bears it out. He decided that if you own the resources, it doesn't matter what kind of a system you have sitting on top of it. You own the resources, and if anybody else wants them to stay alive, they come to you and give you whatever it is you ask for <laughs> in return. And that's exactly what's happened ever since then. It has been a giant, giant resource grab where resources and money, but represented by resources, are flowing to an increasingly small number of people in the world. Wealth is being accumulated by a very small group of people. Everybody else in the world is losing ground. The middle class is almost unrecognizable, even in our country. The underclass is just uh, expanded all over the world, including our country with the homeless situation and people doubling up in homes and going back to live with their parents, those sort of thing. But in other countries like China and like um, in some places in Europe and India, the, the, the underclass has been pushed back into that $6 a day or less income category where, where they're just every day they wake up figuring, man, is today the day I'm going to die or, you know, will I make it another day? Very hard life for a lot of people in the world right now. Yeah, very true. And, you know, something that we've been discussing quite a bit on our show is the big pickup in inflation, which uh, everyone is feeling and experiencing, of course. And we don't think that that is a trend that is going to end, but will probably be with us for quite some time going forward. And this does relate 
back to technocracy, because if you think about it, um, how can you control a monetary system when everything has been digitized? And, you know, if you ascribe to the beliefs of modern monetary theory, you can electronically print uh, infinite amounts of electronic currency and control the world's networks, the financial system, the economy by doing so. Um, unfortunately, inflation is is obviously a byproduct of that. But I, I want to get into um, something that you mentioned when it comes to the concentration of wealth among a very small number of elite. A lot of these people, uh, the concentration of wealth is among those who are, again, inventing uh, some of the technologies that we use across the world, you know, and Elon Musk being one person that you mentioned, but we could also look at Sergey Brin at Google, Alphabet. Uh, we could also look at Bill Gates, Microsoft, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> Facebook, Jeff Bezos at Amazon. These are now the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world. Their companies have more influence over society today than presidents, kings, or entire countries. Where do you see technocracy being pursued or perhaps assented to by some of these elite? Well, by judging by their actions, even if they aren't writing, like Jeff Bezos doesn't write, I've, I've never seen him write a column anywhere or have a podcast, although he did buy Washington Post, but <laughs> I don't think he writes anything for him. Um, by their actions, they're acting as technocrats doing what they want to do in the most efficient possible way. If you look at any warehouse, for instance, run by uh, Bezos, every single little action is watched. Uh, you know, every, every reach to a shelf, every fold of a piece of paper, uh, everything is rated, circulated. People have complained in the past that they're, they're so pressed down by performance issues that they take bottles, empty bottles to work to urinate in. Uh, I mean, it's just like, well, maybe, maybe they all don't, but just even one story coming out kind of tells you that it's a very difficult place to work, even though you do get paid for it. And, uh, but it's micromanagement, um, just incredible at an incredible level. This is the same thing we see with how Musk runs his businesses, various businesses, including of course, Tesla. Uh, many people have complained that Tesla is just a nightmare to work for uh, because of the intense monitoring and surveillance that they have. They can't move left or right without the quote unquote, the system knowing what you're doing and trying to correct you right away. Um, you know, this is what we see at Microsoft. We know all of Bill Gates's um, shenanigans on a global stage with healthcare and with uh, universal ID systems and stuff. All of these all of these things that these people are doing play into what I saw in original technocracy back in the 1930s. The requirements they set down then are virtually being played out right now with all these various companies. And as they gain power, of course, where, where does that power come from? Well, it's, it's being gained at the expense of national governments. So, you know, I'm not sure we could say that there's any uh, net gain of power in the world, in a sense, you know, one goes up, the other goes down, but the national governments of the world and consequently the people of the world as represented by the national governments, they are losing power at breakneck speed. While all of these big tech companies are gaining power 
at break this, the, the lost power at breakneck speed. And so now the big tech companies are dictating to the governments rather than the other way around. Well, it seems to me that a scientific or technological dictatorship, it really can't be achieved without mass surveillance. And that is what we see being implemented through most of these companies um, is the use of mass surveillance. Uh, Of course, we're all carrying around the most uh, powerful surveillance tool ever created, cell phone in our pockets, right? (laughs) Tracks everything that we do. Uh, if not online, where we go, who we talk to. Uh, so this is, you know, perhaps allowing for the utopian dream that was envisioned by the original technocratic elite. Uh, but it, it, it definitely seems to me that these large, powerful tech companies, you know, they are allowing for this. And in some cases, many of the leaders of these companies do appear to uh, either assent or they're really trying to um, achieve certain goals that are closely aligned with technocracy. And that's on the social engineering side of things. And you talk about that in terms of something that's very closely related to technocracy. Perhaps it's the other side of the coin, fitting again with the social engineering aspect of things. And that's transhumanism. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? The COVID-19 crisis has shown us that our old systems are not fit anymore for the 21st century. It has laid bare the fundamental lack of social cohesion, fairness, inclusion, and equality. In short, as long as not everybody is vaccinated, nobody will be safe. So that concludes part one of today's interview with Patrick Wood, a world's leading historian on the technocratic movement and expert on how it is being implemented today. Be sure to pick up with the second part airing tomorrow where we discuss transhumanism, the Siamese twin of technocracy, where science, engineering, and technology are used not just to control the economy, but the individual at the biological level. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.